How can you turn the world upside down? What rules are you playing? There's only one rule, expediency. Munt gives London what it needs, so Fiedler dies and Munt lives. It was a foul, foul operation, but it paid off. Who for? What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? That was world-weary, bitter spy Alex Lemus, played by Richard Burton, telling the cold, ugly, unfiltered truth about spies in cynical espionage classic, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. We're breaking protocol sellouts this week with no new films. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to listen to our review of the espionage thriller Three Days of the Condor from 1975. Plus also in the secret dossier, a deep rivalry that can only be settled on the tennis court, and rewriting history with a big spoonful of racism in What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. You're listening to Cellcast. I'm Lawrence. And I'm Sam. Well, I'd say, uh, since the war, our methods, our techniques, that is, and those of the communists have become very much the same. Yes. I mean, occasionally, we have to do wicked things. Very wicked things, indeed. But uh, you can't be less wicked than your enemies simply because your government's policy is benevolent, can you? So, we haven't done one of these for a little while, uh, so there's ample things to choose. Uh, Sam, what have you been watching? Well, over the lockdown, I've managed to catch up on quite a few new films, uh, which has been one of the bonuses. I think one of the films that I'm going to talk about is... Paul Gervais' McEnroe from 2017. Mm-hmm. Now, I was missing Wimbledon. We didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have Wimbledon this summer. You mean uh, the, the movie, the, Wimbledon, <laughs> with uh, Paul Bettany and Kirsten Dunst? Uh, that is not what I meant, because um, that's one of the worst sporting films ever made. But <laughs> Paul Gervais' McEnroe, I really enjoyed him. One of the best sporting films ever made, actually. Um, so it's from 2017. It's directed by Janos Metz Pedersen. It's with um, Charlotte Buff as John McEnroe and uh, Sverre Goodnanson as Bjorn Borg. Absolutely butchered that. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Mr. Goodnanson. Um, but yeah, it's um, basically the story um, of the build-up and tension and rivalry between Borg and McEnroe prior to the 1980 Wimbledon's Championships. Uh, the only thing standing between Borg and that record is you. You and Borg are as different as two people could possibly be. Is he backstage or something? Is he going like, to jump out of the cage? McEnroe is the bigger talent. But playing Borg is like being hit by a sledgehammer. I mean, the ball is on the line! Chuck's floor below! You don't understand what the fuck it takes to play tennis. Shut up! But people you know I go out there and I give everything for this game? Everything. Everything in me gets left out on that fucking court. And none of you understand it because none of you do it. So they were both tennis players. They were both tennis players, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't understand sports unless it's in like a pop culture concept, so, you know. Sure, well, I'll set it up for you. <laughs> the reason why I think this film was, was made, and it was actually like a really interesting project, is because they used to call Bjorn Borg like Iceborg. He was just a very cool, refined, um, at that point he'd won four Wimbledon championships in a row. Right. He was just the best tennis player the world had ever seen, really. And then McEnroe was slightly younger, but he was just this complete, like, volatile, 
creature who would swear in court and obviously tennis tennis is quite a, a sort of gentleman's game is what yeah. I think you'd say and yeah and McEnroe was just this complete like volcano he would just come out and be really aggressive and that's what he was kind of really famous for in the tennis world he really shook it up so you had these polar opposites coming together to compete and they had played each other before but I guess the Wimbledon's finals in 1980 was the the pinnacle for them. Yeah, and so like every sports film, really, I think it's looking for what makes a sportsman great. What is it that makes an individual the best in their sporting field? And for Borg, I think the reason that he's able to become great is because he sort of has this meditative state um, in his preparation. He takes his seven rackets the night before each game. He sort of sleeps in ice-cold conditions. You know, everything has to be proper. Everything is sort of meticulous in his preparation for the match. And we learn that when um, Bjorn Borg was much younger, he had the same sort of aggression uh, that McEnroe had. But his coach, played by Stan Skarsgård, he learns how to um, harness it. So yeah, the idea is that sort of restricting and controlling your aggression enhances your skill. That's what leads Beyond Borg to be be the best in the world, be the, be the number one. And over the film, I guess the way it's portrayed, McEnroe goes for his own journey because all the way through the Wimbledon Championships, he's getting booed by the crowd and there's this real dislike for him. You know, there's this idea that Bjorg is like the hero and he's the villain. Yeah. And then when it gets to the final, we see a much more relaxed and I guess for lack of a better word polite version of McEnroe you know he's not he's not running around the the court swearing or you know getting in arguments with the umpire he controls himself and the final of that Wimbledon that year is just this huge um epic battle really um and at one point in the fourth set McEnroe comes back from seven match points so for those that don't watch tennis, like Bjorg is basically, if he wins that point, he wins. And McEnroe stops him doing that seven times. And McEnroe ends up winning that set. And then he, you know, he comes back for a final fifth set. And that's obviously, that's the finale of the film. But I guess it's really just a really interesting film because you kind of have this duality all the way through about these two sort of different characters and how ultimately their rivalry just makes each one of them better. There's this obsession that I think you learn quite quickly that McEnroe has with Bjorn Borg the way he I think he sits in his hotel room and he maps out the whole of the Wimbledon tournament and he knows from a very early stage that if he wins all his matches he'll go into a final with Bjorn Borg Um, and we also get this sense that because McEnroe is slightly younger he's grown up in the shadow he's grown up really aware of Bjorg and he's always he's always trying to find that way to have the the quality of Bjorg but he just hasn't been able to do it and maybe that sort of led to his frustration and his sort of overly macho persona in matches so why do I sort of like this film um, so much I guess for me it's the technical aspects of it so the editing and the cinematography is incredible the tennis itself is so kinetic and it has some of the best sporting sequences that I've ever seen the problem that I often find with sports films is that the recreation of the sport itself is often when the film lets itself down. So I don't know if you remember Invictus, which was directed by Clint Eastwood with Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. Yeah. Um, and that was about the South African Rugby World Cup. And while there was a lot of good stuff in there, the rugby itself looked so sanitised by the CGI. Yeah. They just had a real problem making the rugby look realistic. And whenever you had a scene that involved 
you know, part of the Rugby World Cup, I just found myself losing interest, switching off, being taken out of the film because it just wasn't palpable. And you never get this with Borg versus McEnroe. Uh, you you always get the sense that what you could be watching an actual tennis match. The way they put those sequences together, you have a TV view, and then you have these sort of close-ups of them playing tennis, and yeah. you could actually be on court with them. And I think that maybe even there are other parts of the film that are a bit forgettable. We have seen that idea of you know two sporting icons going against each other in other films. Rush being a bit of an example from, from 2013. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's so difficult to achieve what um, the director has done in terms of making those tennis scenes look so, so spectacular. And that's why I sort of came away from it, yeah, really, really liking it. It sounds like you kind of admired the competitiveness or you're kind of fascinated by the competitiveness of it do you think that's the allure of, of sports films a bit or i think it is so i mentioned rush which was um the rivalry between nicky lauder and james hunt in formula one um and i think there was even parts of the senna documentary yeah which involved his rivalry with another formula one driver that i can't remember so i do think that's like a big staple of the sports movie like it's not going to be in every single one but I think a rivalry aspect is always sort of very gripping. The great thing about Ball versus McEnroe is that ultimately they start um, the film quite far apart, but naturally and gradually they come closer together. Yeah. And actually, there's a really nice and sincere scene at the end at the airport where, and again, this might have been recreated, this might not be true, but. You get the sense that when they come together, there really is this admiration. And maybe it is a bit cliche. I mean, we kind of do see the same in, in Rush from 2013. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I shouldn't really make out that this is something unique and never seen before. It, it is a bit of a, a cliche. But I don't mind cliches when they feel like they've been explored in a way. Yeah. Like there's the sense that it's done, it's been done properly. And actually, you've... Throughout the course of the film, you've seen them so far apart, and then, yeah, the progression to see them get closer together, and this discussion that they have with one another, whenever they've met before, it's been obviously on a tennis court, and there's just been, there's been this real sort of aggression towards one another, but actually that scene at the airport, it seems like we've got a new equilibrium in that they've both sort of reached their peak and that they were able to recognise each other as um, as genuine rivals. It sounds really interesting because it sounds like a a sports movie where all the pieces work so well together and everything in it is so well done, and that's why it really, really works. Yeah, Bjorn Bjorg would like the film because of that. <laughs> you know, it's just so well, it's so technically well done. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that I think I think that's true, and I, I referred forward to Invictus about how maybe like some of the. Like the sporting sequences aren't as good as what's happening elsewhere in the film. And maybe, you know, I can see the argument that Ball vs. McEnroe's gone the other way. And actually, like, the scenes that are away from the actual tennis maybe could be a bit stronger. But overall, I thought it was a really, really good sports film that, um, yeah, I felt was was worthy of, of talking about. How does uh, Shire come off? Because he's had an interesting career and he's got this almost, like, Nicolas Cage-like following now that I think is almost going to grow for his off-screen persona of being quite uh, intense, maybe a little bit pretentious and taking himself too seriously. But like on on screen, he he is he's seeking out lots of like really interesting roles. Do you think this was 
w- w- what was it like watching him in this? How, how did he come off to you as, a, as, a, as an actor? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me, actually, because um, I guess for me talking about all the technical aspects of the film, it is easy to forget the performances. And he is really great casting because I think in his best roles, Charlotte Booth combines anger with the sensitivity underneath. Um, and this version of Macro that is portrayed as someone who feels like he has to be a bit of a bastard to be the best, which of course isn't the case really. You know, you don't have to... Again, I think it's kind of a part of like toxic masculinity that you have to be sort of pure evil in a way to, to win. And that's something that he... I think he learns over the course of the film. Um, you can be the best in your sport, you can be the best in your field, but you don't have to do that the wrong way. And at the end of the film... He gets the adulation from the Wimbledon crowd, which in a way I think he's been seeking really, because all the way through the film, the media has portrayed him as someone who is the foe of uh, Bjorn Borg. Actually, when he gets to the end of the film and he rises above it, and actually I think he, you know, he he doesn't, in, in his biggest match of all time, what he's actually able to do is control that aggression and yeah because of that the spectacle is much much better you're a big football person do you think we're ever going to see a really really good football film i doubt we will ever see um a really good football film that has really good scenes of a football match that's recreated yeah Uh, i can talk about at least two or three films most notably you know the gold trilogy (laughs) about how when the when they actually film football it looks absolutely terrible and the greatest of the trilogies (laughs) yeah i mean i think something that the damn united did was they showed very little football and it was more about brian clough who tune plays it was more about him than anything else it was it was you know it was a it was a film about a football manager, but of course it was more about, you know, um, a person who's who's kind of obsessed with the sport and how to get the best out of people. Yeah. Um, which, you know, Brian Clough in the end, that was, you know, his best skill set. As if Kabaddi's Maradona last year, which is one of my favourite films, I think that kind of feels like the best that we're going to get because what he did is he got documentary footage of old games from Syria and... yeah. Um, in Italy and then even clips of games involving Barcelona he got the footage and he you know enhanced the colour enhanced the tone of it or um, you know he made he made those that documentary footage look a lot better so therefore that he didn't really need to you know make a feature film about Maradona but he just got the best sort of stock footage that he could to make yeah. it look really colourful and vibrant. But you don't think wherever we, we'll never get like a football film that maybe it's not like a documentary, not about a manager, but about a really important player and a film that could capture the experience of playing football the same way that they experience playing tennis uh, in Borg Macro, or even like, I, I look to Rocky, like Rocky's not a realistic boxing film, but it captures the intensity of the sport, right? We'll never, we'll never get anything like that. Eventually we will, because... Technology will get better and they'll find a way to make a football match look realistic. But certainly not in my lifetime. I haven't really seen a a film that's actually about football, primarily about the sport, that recreates football in in a really realistic and, and tangible way. Well, there's a challenge. Any filmmakers out there listening to it, prove Sam wrong. Make a really, really good football film. So, uh, what have you been watching this week? 
uh, well, not quite this week, but recently, I watched Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I, I did it. I feel like it's an achievement. I watched nearly four hours, three hours and 50 minutes of the highest grossing film ever made when adjusted for inflation. It is, if anyone doesn't know, it is the epic story of the life of Scarlett O'Hara, who is a daughter of a very rich plantation owner in the south of the United States, just before, during, and just after the American Civil War and her romantic entanglements, particularly with Rhett Butler, played by Clark Gable. You should die of shame to leave me here alone and helpless. You help us? <laughs> Heaven help the Yankees if they capture you. Now, uh, climb down here. I want to say goodbye. No. Climb down. Oh, Red, please don't go. You can't leave me, please. I'll never forgive you. I'm not asking you to forgive me. I'll never understand or forgive myself. And if a bullet gets me, so help me, I'll laugh at myself for being an idiot. There's one thing I do know, and that is that I love you, Scarlett. In spite of you and me and the whole silly world going to pieces around us, I love you. I watched this film because I, I, lo- I, I love film, and uh, that's why I'm making a podcast about it. And I don't want to turn it into an exclusive club, but I do think it's good to get the classics under your belt. Because it's always an interesting experience. So Gone with the Wind was always something I really wanted to conquer. And it it does feel like something to conquer because it's a style of film, a big like melodrama that's really, really long, that is just not the kind of thing that, that, that people make or watch uh, very often. I, I felt as well that it's like, it's, a, it's one of these films that's very, very famous, but I don't think a lot of my peers will have watched it. And so I, I thought it was it was it was I thought it was going to be an interesting watch. It was also because uh, the thing was that it was in the news recently because a month or two they took it down off of HBO Max, which is one of the streaming services. They've now put it up again, but with a kind of warning at the beginning of it. And always a good sign. Always a good sign. Um, well, in these kind of heightened in in these times, I think that they felt that it was time for a bit of a revision of a few things. Uh, some of those choices I agree with. Some of them I don't in terms of TV and, and film. Um, but th- that's what they felt they needed to do with, with with Gone with the Wind. I was vaguely aware of the, the controversy around it. And initially when they were talking about banning it, they were talking about one character, Mammy, who people felt was a, was a stereotype, um, which is true. Um, she was also the first African-American person to win an Oscar for that role. But... My God, I was not prepared for the film that I actually ended up watching. Like, I I knew when it was set. I wasn't completely ignorant to it. I knew about the famous bits. But basically, I was expecting Jane Austen or one of the Brontes, but in the American Civil War. But nothing could prepare me for what I was about to watch. Um, To be honest, I thought it was controversial because it presents a picture of the South that's romantic. And I thought, oh, well, it's a romantic movie. So what if there's, like, some big shots of, uh, of, of you know, the the hanging willow trees or the, the big houses? You know, it's a, it's a romantic movie. You know, so what? But no, no, no. The whole thing 
is a massive rewrite of history, a massive propaganda piece. The whole thing presents the pre-war South as a magical, beautiful time. And the war brought on by the evil Yankees who destroyed a wonderful way of life is, is the whole thing, the whole way through. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, then the opening crawl is literally, there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. Like... It, it's it's baffling. Like the, the whole film refuses to acknowledge at all that this was a society built on the subjugation and the horror of slavery. Th- th- that's like the opening crawl and the, the narration. Yeah, it knows exactly what it's doing, doesn't it? It when, does. When it opens with yeah narration like that, it's it, it's it's clearly just going to go on to make some pretty heinous scenes my jaw was on the floor the whole time i mean basically the attitudes of these people the whole film just walks around like it's in this like it's in this magical world and like it you just think that like well right around the corner there's a whole bunch of evil stuff going on but you never show that or want to acknowledge that at all like the crawls themselves are hilarious by that i mean these um words come up on the screen to kind of tell you what's what's going on in the wider scope of things and then they focus back on the kind of personal drama of Scarlet as she gets into a romantic entanglement and has to deal with being poor because you know they lost the civil war so her plantation is is taken away and she's like oh no my plantation now she's gonna have to struggle for a living yes because previously black people were doing all the work for you on that plantation so yes Scarlet you are actually gonna have to pull your weight finally so, so one of the crawls says, like, oh, to split the Confederacy, to leave it for, forever humbled, the great invader marched on. Oh, yeah, the, the great invader that was coming down to, like, destroy the society that's built on racism. Like, it's really bad. bad. Oh, there's other bits. There's other bits that I loved, like... That you, that you hated, but... The, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I hated, <laughs> loved. But, but it's like... I mean, I'll come to that maybe in the end, but it, but it's like it's almost like so horrifying that you you just like laugh at it. Now, th- there's a bit where the men like form a posse to get rid of some Northerners that are camped out who try to like mug Scarlet on the way, and it's very clanny. Like it just stinks of the clan. Like it really, it really, fe- it really feels really, really weird. The, the, the problem is in that sequence is that again, it's like it's trying to rewrite stuff because the people that mug her are black. But then another black person saves her. The the black people in this, the the, the people, the black people that live down south, like they, they keep going, like they hate those damn Yankees, like just as much as the white people. And you know, they they're just they just seem to be these people that are also like really quite sad that the that the old south is coming to an end, which is just a bizarre way of representing people that have been freed from slavery. Like it's it's just completely baffling. So a quick post recording note here. Um, on a little bit of extra research, I found out in the original book, Gone with the Wind, that indeed it was the Ku Klux Klan that went and did a raid on the uh, shanty town where Scarlet got mugged. So the reason it felt a little bit clanny is because in the original book it was really clanny. Oh God, this story is so racist. The, my 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 absolute favourite bit is when. Um, basically Scarlet is trying to start up a factory to make some money. Someone brings in some workers for her and says, oh, these these prisoners of war will work for you, and they're all ex-Confederacy soldiers that are still prisoners of war. 
and she says, and um, the guy that she's romantically entangled with says, oh, I don't want to help those, I, I don't want to help have those people working. And she's like, oh, no, but we've, we've got to because it'll help us save money. And he says, I've got the script here. He says, I won't make money out of the enforced labor and misery of others. And I just and she and then and then Scarlett says exactly what I'm thinking. She says you didn't mind owning owning slaves, and he says that was different. We didn't treat them that way. I'd have freed them when father dr- died if the war hadn't already freed them. Oh, oh, how how convenient! <laughs> oh, you were just on the verge of of emancipating all the slaves in your plantation, but then the war came along and did it for you. Well, that's just because that's definitely what was going to happen. That was definitely what was going to happen. You were going on the plantation that you owned. You were going to get rid of of all the free labour that was enforced by your society. Look, look I'm I'm going off on it a bit, but. I understand the film has a context and the film is important in the history of film and that it's full of the technique of the films of the time that make it really brilliant the full of these amazing shots these grand sequences particularly the parties and the and and like shots of like um some of the, like the battlefields and stuff they're, they're wonderful right and i can understand you you watching it this with a certain context or a certain nostalgia and it, like it, it's okay i think that hbo max bringing it back but at the beginning putting a warning at the beginning contextualizing it that's really important i think that's really good i think i think that's exactly the kind of thing that should be done i don't think it should be banned at all i think it is a very important film and should continue to be watched but my experience watching it was for me like watching a minstrel show and what i mean by that was you you watch something that's so offensive and you just wonder how something so offensive could ever be shown without Jaws being just permanently on the floor. And you just almost find... And I found myself, like, almost laughing. Well, in fact, I did find myself laughing because it was so awful. I just felt like I had to laugh and everything. And I I'm, I don't even consider myself, like, the wokest of the woke. And, and like I said, Gone with the Wind, very important film, watch it in context, but my experience watching it was I could not believe that this film was ever made with a straight face because the way that it represents the antebellum South is baffling. And the big problem is is that people believe in that vision of the South. Mm-hmm. The way that you've described it, you still see people in America today talking about the South, talking about their ancestors, as if it was this sort of grand and beautiful land that should be savoured and people remember it for all the good that was there even though it was just inherently racist and, and inherently an evil place yeah I just think well it was all part of the um there was this huge movement of revisionist historians in the early 20th century who were still trying to basically you know they, they were basically the the last of the confederate soldiers were were you know were starting to die so they were trying to think how can they preserve a lot of these ideas and they wrote and that's when a lot of these statues started to get put up and there's a lot of really insidious textbooks started getting put in american schools because they wanted to rewrite history they wanted to chose the pre-war south to be this magical beautiful place just like gone with the wind paints it and gone with the wind unfortunately just has this real ugliness to it now that I watched it, I, I want to emphasise that it, it almost sounds like I, I'm watching this film and, and 
and don't, and don't understand that watch films, read books, listen to music, and understand that they came from a different time, a different place. I do, and it's fine. But I, I just don't understand how you could watch it now and not link it with this horrible, insidious, revisionist history. Scarlet, I will not make money out of the enforced labour and misery of others. You weren't so particular about owning slaves. That was different. We didn't treat them that way. Besides, I'd have freed them all when Father died, if the war hadn't already freed them. Oh, I'm sorry, Ashley. But have you forgotten what it's like without money? I found out that money is the most important thing in the world, and I don't intend ever to be without it again. So, this week... We watch an old film. We watched Three Days of the Condor, which is from 1971. It's from 1975. Which is from 1975, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Turner, played by Robert Redford, works as a CIA analyst in New York. While out for lunch, seven of his colleagues are murdered. As he tries to seek safety, there is an assassination attempt on him. This then leads Turner to kidnapping Kathy, played by Faye Dunaway, and trying to solve why he's become the number one target for the Bureau. Or, as a haiku, Spy Guy on Lunch Run. Who'll eat all these sandwiches? Now workmates are fired. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I love, that's literally fired. Oh, that's poetry for you. That's the art. You see, there's, 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 it's rings within rings within rings. Mm. Um, and here's a clip. My name is Turner. I work for you. Now listen. Identify yourself. I, I don't... What is your designation? Uh, Condor. Section 9, Department 17. The section's been hit. What level? What level? Level of damage. Everybody. Dr. Lapp, Janice, Ray, Harold. Harold was in the... Uh, uh... Are you in a company line? No, no, I'm in a phone booth. I'm, I'm just a block away. I'm in the street. You're in violation of secure communication procedures, Condor. Listen, you son of a bitch. I'm telling you, I came back with lunch and it was raining and the whole house was murdered. Everybody is dead. Right. Has the incident been discovered by anyone outside the company? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Are you damaged? Damaged? No. Are you armed? I don't, I have Mrs., uh, I don't, can't remember her code name. Nightingale. She was afraid of being raped. She kept a gun. I've got the gun. Identify the armament. It's a 45 automatic. Will you guys bring me in, please? I'm not a field agent. I just read books. First of all, uh, why did we pick this? Uh, I don't think we need to make a massive deal out of this. Um, but we sort of picked this because we could have reviewed The Old Guard... Um, but we kind of did a lot of action movies last season, and then unfortunately, with the situation as it is, the short story is there's not that much new being released that we feel was going to be too relevant to people, and we also thought that it's our show, and we can do what the hell we want, so after watching Mark Commode's Secrets of Cinema uh, on espionage films uh, a couple of months ago, we noticed this film, and we immediately earmarked it, and we, we we thought it looked really, really worthwhile. So we said, oh, we, we, we must find a time to watch it. And we figured, why not weave it into this podcast? Yeah, it was referenced a couple of times within that program, which I think is still on BBC iPlayer. Um, it looked really stylish, looked really interesting. And um, deep state conspiracy theories are all the rage these days. <laughs> so, yeah, we thought a we'd... A timely uh, film. Yeah, we thought we'd, um, we'd give it a go. I think we also watched um, All the President's Men quite recently as well. Uh, another Robert Redford film from the 1970s um, investigating the Watergate scandal. So maybe a bit of a theme. Yeah, and 
it, it, this is something made in the aftermath of Watergate and obviously while it's not about Watergate itself that was kind of set obviously in the real world this is you know uh, based on a book it's still that reaction to corruption within the security services yeah and I thought it's an excellent little slice of, of spy fiction I think it's got a really good balance between being a tense exciting thrill ride and also trying to be a more genuine film about espionage and spycraft I think that the the beginning, it kind of started off with Redford being a bit of a cool maverick and establishing him as a smart guy who could think outside the box. And then I think the ending was a little bit too slow. I think it slowed down a bit too much for me. But the middle chunk is absolute gold. If you like thrillers and if you like spy films, I think it's really this is really something worth seeking out. Because it doesn't enter the pop culture uh, as, as much as other like spy films do. Uh, the DNA of it... I think you can actually say is in a lot of like more famous pop culture references today. Yeah, and the the sheer dread of paranoia runs all the way through it. Yeah, um, I think that's because, that's the best bit of it. I think I think that's obviously because you, you've kind of got this concept of the CIA coming after one of their own in terms of Robert Redford, but then his character's reaction to sort of kidnap a completely innocent member of the public just sort of, sort of then sends you into this really sort of cyclical like this really cyclical idea of not only is he on the run for himself but he's sort of committed a crime and then sort of this woman's in complete peril it's just this kind of masterclass of yeah paranoia and and a thriller that i think even gets under your skin at some points I think it's partly some of those decisions that he's making i was trying to work out why this film is so tense because it's one of these wonderful experiences where you end up watching an old film and it just really, really works. Unlike the film that I was also... The older film I also watched <laughs> recently that I talked about in this podcast. It's really fascinating to watch, like, an an old film that is actually is really current and has, like, lots of things you could you could recommend about it now. Yeah, just, I, on, just on that, though, what did you think about the relationship between Turner and Kathy? Awful. I, I found it really, awful. really uncomfortable. Like that, that's the one, like, that's the, I think that's the, the biggest negative part about this, is that they, yeah, Turner and Kathy, played by Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway, like, that they strike up is, like, terrible. She, he, he kidnaps her, almost out of, kind of, desperation, and then she sort of becomes attracted to him, and then instigates them having sex and it is so fucking creepy and weird yeah it's very sort of stockholm syndrome uh i i i found it horrible and it's i think what's equally difficult about it is as you mentioned like the character of uh, redford um at the beginning you know he's quite happy-go-lucky and he's sort of someone that you feel sympathy for where because he feels like he's just basically in the wrong place at the wrong time or you're not quite sure why the cia are coming after him but he changes and he sort of become controlling manipulative and in the end quite violent towards her and so you get this sort of transition of character and and it's yeah it's, it's really really hard to watch but that's like a good thing it's the, it's the actual fact that it turns into a love story that actually makes it i think uncomfortable like I don't I, I just didn't think it was very appropriate well I think the way that the film tries to justify it is because they each find out the ulterior sides of one another so this is idea that Kathy is a photographer in her spare time I think and yeah. she takes 
these sort of lonely pictures of New York. And Turner notices that quite quickly. Cavi feels that um, she's almost like being flattered by him in a way but yeah it's just it just feels like it just felt like he was kind of manipulating under, yeah he was, he was under it's under this banner of e- that even though i think this the, the scene where they uh have sex like it does go at lengths to show that actually i think turner is pretty uncomfortable about this like he wants to he he, he wants to do it but at the same time he feels quite he's quite reticent seeing about everything they've been through and and, and everything but I guess because she instigates it, he kind of he goes along with it. But that's maybe the one of the sharpest like negative points in the film. I uh, think in um, Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight, uh, which has a similar relationship between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, this is referenced. Yeah, I, I read about this as well when I was kind of trying to do some research. Yeah, but um, I mean, I don't know. The relationship between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez maybe is quite controversial, but. This feels like another step below that. There's also another fascinating character that we should touch on, which is Joubert, played by Max von Sydow. Yeah, he's great. And uh, he's the assassin that um, basically murders Turner's colleagues within the CIA office. As the film goes on, he becomes someone that is actually really integral to the story. He's educated, refined, sort of quite an avuncular persona as well, because he's trying to to kill Turner at first. But then as events move along, he ends up helping Turner in quite a significant way. And at the end of the film, he sort of persuades him to leave the country. Sort of a hint at exiting the turbulence of American espionage. Mm. And he sort of, the way he talks about Europe, like it's some sort of paradise, um, juxtaposes the cold, harsh and convoluted setting of the East Coast of America. And I quite like that because I think they established that he's from Germany originally. And so you get this, the sense that he's kind of this outsider. He's coming into this, yeah, this, this system within America where it's all just yeah, very paranoid. And his idea that yeah, he'd rather just be anywhere else. Yeah, I really like Joubert as well. I think it, what was most fascinating about him is that you get the sense through the structure of the CIA and the world of espionage, but particularly through Joubert, of a world of professionals, a, a world of people that do this for a living and can do this for a living and that juxtaposes Turner and that's part of what is so effective and so tense about the film because you you feel as it establishes repeatedly Turner as like when he picks up a gun for the first time even though later a lot later on you find out he has been in the army he it's like he doesn't really know what to do with this thing so and and as it goes on it establishes that he is just so completely out of his depth and when you juxtapose that with the professionalism of Joubert, that's what makes it so terrifying. Because you realise, like, how is he going to get out of this world where there are people that are so skilled at being ruthless? Like, there's no way of of, of getting out of it. Like, the best bit, when they first, like, come up against one another, and the camera almost... Uh, is is placed to almost be Turner's point of view, and Joubert just walks right past the camera, and you, you, I just could feel myself get even more tense, just like, oh my god, he's right there, he's right there, and stuff. And then how that scene like progresses is just is just brilliant as as you they they start to kind of like feel one another out. But Joubert as well, like, is is fascinated by Turner because 
as well that the reason that he might be in such peril is also maybe the reason that he's also surviving because he's such an amateur and Joubert comments on this is that he's unpredictable he's unpredictable you don't know what he's going to do in a world of professionals where everyone's been through a certain amount of training and a certain kind of training you learn to kind of work out one of your own even if they're on the other side and come from a completely different school but for someone who is just completely out of this world then you it's impossible to know what they'll do so yeah what what is dooming him might even be saving him so he lives on that knife edge and that might be again why this this film is so tense and so exciting to watch yeah, it's really, really suspenseful. And when I was watching it, I felt so on edge. And I was trying to work out why, when I watch more modern films, I don't feel the same way. Like in a good old-fashioned thriller that's been made in the past 10 years, I think I've rarely felt the same amount of yeah tension and nerves that I have in this one. I think one of my favourite um, small bits in the film was when, at the beginning, when Turner's colleagues are murdered. And the like the murder squad, there's three of them. They go into the office and um, Turner's girlfriend at the time, who obviously ends up getting killed, she's working on a scanning machine and she can't hear them come into the room. So she's working on the scanning machine and she's got her back turned. Yeah. And they're all there, like, about to kill her. And there's just this few brief seconds where she doesn't know that she's about to die. And it's just horrible. And, and it just feels like time really, really slows down. And like, that's just a really great way of, yeah, showing this... The suspense. Well, I, like, I hate to sound like a film snob, but maybe they just didn't have as many, like, tricks at their disposal. Well, maybe they did, but but not when going into an espionage film. Maybe it's just not the kind of thing they, they were used to. So they, they were a lot more restrictive in what they did with the camera and with the way that they told the story with the camera. So it, it, it creates a much more realistic feel. And then that adds, just adds to the suspense, adds to the tension. I think that's a really good point, yeah. Especially when, at the beginning of the film, the murder squad and Joubert are watching The Office. And there are so many takes which are of, you know, the people turning up to work, of them watching, of them being basically under surveillance. And Sidney Pollock, the director, isn't afraid to repeat the same shot just to create that sense of, you know, where all the figures are. And you just kind of got this really like slow pacing, but then this really amplifies the yeah the tension and the fact that you kind of you know what's going to happen, you know that there's going to be some sort of yeah murder at some point. But the fact that you've seen so many of these shots is never a sense that it feels dull. It's just slowly edging towards like um, the event that is yeah is basically going to be the catalyst for the rest of the film. Well, that's what you want to do, don't you? You want you want to make that feeling of almost someone slowly slipping off some kind of edge that's uh if you, if you can find a way to do that and i think yeah maybe stripping back a lot of stuff using a lot of uh, repeated shots just 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 being really low tech about it is 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 really the way to go i think as well partly also like redford's performance is really really good like he is a an excellent actor but the thing is, it's just like he 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 is in the CIA, right? He's never in 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 like a panic. He's never like terrified, but he's just always like desperate. He he's just not super comfortable in this world. It, it, he's just never over the top. He's always just on the edge the whole time, and that's why. And he's always like making these bad decisions or these rushed decisions, 
and everything, and he's sort of just getting away with it. So it, it's a performance that that makes you believe that this person is just getting away with it by the skin of their teeth. You believe this is the kind of person that really would do that. Yeah, and I think you see him physically change over the course of the film. I remember when he first comes on screen and he's you know on this on this bike, and yeah, he seems fresh, jovial, full of energy. Yeah. Then I think you know after these three days. He is like he's got this stubble. He looks grey. He looks stressed. Um, and yeah, and I think that's a really again a good way to show his transition from someone you know in a place that's he's like perfectly happy to be to someone who's been like pushed to his absolute limits. Can we uh, talk about the fight scene as well? Because there is one particular like action scene where he's where he has to fight a member of the murder squad and it's a really brilliant sequence for for a for a movie that doesn't really focus on action again made what like 35 years ago like it's it's a brilliant action scene like it's it's really scrappy there's like no soundtrack or no music trying to like jazz it up or sex it up it's just these two very desperate people just trying to kill the other one any way they can it's full of just like improvised weapons and people throwing themselves really at full force into each other and breaking things and smashing things. It doesn't go on for very long, but there's something about it that almost makes it feel like a proto Bourne fight. You know, the, the kind of fights that Bourne became so famous for. This feels like a prototype for that. Yeah, and I think Joubert could be one of these agents that comes after Bourne. Because there's, yeah. there's a sense, yeah, that he's kind of this, yeah. I guess it's just maybe like the the European influence and the fact that he looks so normal and you know he looks like a bit of like a professional Joubert, and then out of nowhere he's kind of got this completely like violent streak. So well, I think Joubert would talk too much for a born villain. Like but the, the the kind of people that he that the born ends up fighting are always very uh, stoic and yeah. silent, like robots. True, I guess they've sort of been brainwashed, and uh, yeah, Joubert, yeah, he has this, yeah as I say, like, professorial feel about him. So, yeah, maybe not. But um... but lethal too. Like, um, Turner at one point describes him as strong like a farmer, which is, like, this a, a really good way of describing someone that they're just almost organically strong because what they do every day just make just toughens them. It's a great way to describe someone. Yeah, and I do really like the, the melancholy way that Joubert also talks to Turner and he says right towards in the film that says you know at some point and you don't know when you're going to be killed like someone's going to come along and kill you and i think i don't know whether should we spoil the end of the film obviously the film's been out for 35 years so i don't know whether it would be a good idea to reveal the ending uh we'll 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 spoil it and then i'm going to tell you when to come back for for the conclusion that's going to be spoiler free so the time you want to jump to is 49 minutes and 17 seconds. Because, yeah, the reason his team is murdered in the end is because Turner files a report um, to the CIA headquarters and um, he's decided a rogue operation by the CIA to get Middle Eastern oil fields. And ultimately, the assassination feels a bit random and unnecessary. It sort of leaves you with this feeling of fear and disillusion with the CIA. The idea that this sort of seemingly free and democratic country, innocent citizens are killed because it's sort of part of a bit of a contingency plan. The fact that they're just sort of just killed at a snap of fingers because someone might have found out a little bit too much information. And I think Schubert basically, in the penultimate scene, 
he says to Turner, look, you do realise that you're going to be killed at some point, so you need to come up with some sort of... Or there's a hint that he needs to come up with some sort of insurance plan, which Turner does because he gives the sto- he gives these um, these documents, this report. He leaks it to the New York Times who are going to publish it, and because it will be in public, that should technically save him. So I guess he learns that ultimately even though you work for the CIA, when they come after you, you've just got to go solo and look out for your own back. But also, isn't it a rogue element in the CIA that's doing this? Yeah, yes, it's not, yeah, sorry, it's not the not the whole of the CIA, but just, yeah, a, uh, an organisation within an organisation. But then there's also the sense, because Joubert in the end gets hired uh, not to kill Turner. So, but then it, what that shows is because previously, Joubert was hired by the rogue element in the CIA to kill all those people. So it shows that the people, the professionals involved will kind of work for whatever side kind of pays them. But it also shows that the CIA, even when it was not something that they did themselves, they want to cover it up. If they can, if, if, if it's going to be a lot simpler to just silence everyone and just leave it as a bit of a mystery they're going to do that too. Whether that that means that Turner is about to be killed, and I think that it's a bit ambiguous whether they actually want to go as far as to be like, well, let's just get rid of Turner as well because it's just going to neaten everything up. We don't have to think about it. Or whether they're going to just say, oh, no, we're going to let him go. It's it's not really clear. Yeah, maybe there's the sense that he's just going to sort of slowly fade away into the crowd and, and, yeah, perhaps get away from... Uh, this like all encompassing and all knowing sort of evil organization that is the there's the CIA. So uh, I didn't like the ending of the film as much because I started to feel I started to get a bit like detached from it. I did still like some of the the elements with Joubert, but like I think maybe I slightly lost focus with it. I think like I say the chunk in the middle was so tense and then like by the end I think it slightly lost that suspense for me. But it does leave you on a the same sense of paranoia and ambiguity that the kind of the film wants to, to weave into you. I guess overall I'd say that um Three Days of the Condor is a very accessible and very entertaining spy thriller that doesn't ever like dumb you down and there's a there's a lot of meat to it. I think it really rides that really wonderful middle ground where it's it's kind of got a little piece of everything. It's got it, it's got something that's thrilling and tense, but also feels like it's pulling something from the real world. It feels like it's got something to say about the time they were in, and also like espionage as as well as a whole. I think it's a bit of a gem if you're a fan of a lot of things like 70s cinema espionage and thrillers i think this is a this is really worth like seeking out i yeah i i i really enjoyed it and it's and i can see exactly why mark commode used it in the sixth of cinema because it's 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 actually it's a spy thriller it's an espionage film that is useful for illustrating so much about what works in the genre yeah i think the only point i would disagree with you on it is that you called it accessible because actually I think the plot is so labyrinthian that it will cause a lot of people to sort of switch off a little bit. I mean, you mentioned you lost focus, and I do think as a film that you have to concentrate on. Yeah, maybe. I think overall, the biggest thing for me was just the way that it builds suspense and the impact that it has. I think 
it's just a real sign of um, a film that knows what it's doing within the thriller genre. Uh, I yeah, I really like the style. Um, really like the editing. I think even the performances from yeah Redford, Dunaway, uh, Max von Sydow were fantastic. It wasn't the story that made me engrossed with it, but I guess that overall tone was one that made me think how sort of special it was to experience it. I think I would say there are probably better 70s paranoid thrillers, stuff like The French Connection and Marathon Man. I think that's got uh, those two films in particular have more action. And I think all the way through, you feel a bit more engaged with the characters and the story. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, it's a really good example of the genre, um, but perhaps not the, the best of that decade. I think it's the kind of thing that I'm going to come back to and keep unpicking, keep trying to think like, well, what was it that was so effective in Three Days of the Condor that made me feel so tense, that made me feel so on edge? I think that's probably the most special thing I'm going to take from it. Who would it help if I knew? Who would it help? Who'd hire him now? Anybody. Terrific answer. I wouldn't accept it either. What's his name? When I knew him, Jobert. Come on, Higgins, who'd hire him? You don't look up Javert in the yellow pages. That's right. It'd have to be somebody in the community. Community? Intelligence field. Community? Jesus, you guys are kind to yourselves. Community. So, if you like this, you should watch Mission Impossible. With the Mission Impossible films becoming a byword for big, blockbusting Tom Cruise vehicles with extra explosions, it's easy to forget that it started life as one of the last great espionage thrillers of the century. Ethan Hunt is part of a secret American intelligence agency called the IMF, and his unit carries out elaborate and dangerous missions, and if caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of their actions. When a mission goes catastrophically wrong, he's left in the frame as a saboteur, a mole that's been hampering the agency for years with the codename Job. Now with what's left of his team and dwindling resources and time, Ethan has to clear his name and try and expose who the real Job is. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Hunt. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil, that's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. I would like one day to do a whole podcast about just this film, but for now I'll say that the first Mission Impossible has way more in common with Three Days of the Condor than it does with the later, more bombastic installments of its own series. The noir first segment along the streets of Prague and in an American embassy show its cold, war roots. It's got a focus on deception and tradecraft rather than car chases and explosions. Ethan's first priority when he's on the run is money. He has bullets but has very little need for them. Plus he has a neat lo-fi trick with a light bulb and his bloody suit jacket to warn him of intruders. Like Turner, Ethan is abandoned and on the run, trying to clear his name in the wake of blood and corruption. Their approaches are very different as Ethan is professional and uses that professionalism to get what he needs, albeit with a much less professional game plan. There's plenty of tension too, but it's more in a skin-of-your-teeth heist way than an assassination attempt. The iconic abseil into a computer room is still a wonderful nail-biter. The action is also different. No fights, but a high-speed finale of near misses and just inching out of danger. Again, it's nearly bulletless, trying to focus on all the thrills you can build without real violence. They don't really share any politics, though, apart from arguably the unsettling amorality of the spy game that Mission Impossible shows, it's not got its eyes on the intelligence community as a target like Condor does, but it has a fascinating context. What remains of the post-Cold War, pre-1991 
pre-9-11 intelligence world is here. Worth a rewatch if you haven't seen it since your mum rented it for you in the 90s, and definitely worth discovering if your only knowledge of Mission Impossible are the more recent ones. Yeah, it's definitely the best Mission Impossible, and the smartest out of the whole franchise. It never treats its audience like idiots. Like, you have to follow the plot, and um, the more closely you follow it, the more you'll get out of the film. Just like every good espionage thriller. Yeah, and yeah, as, as you say, maybe... That's why there's so much you can take from um, Mission Impossible and look at uh, Three Days of the Condor and yeah, and see the similarities because yeah, the more you engage with the story, I think the more you get out of it. And it's got rewatchability as well. Yeah. I think that's a really good sign for a for a good thriller. Sure, and for all the dialogue and yeah, maybe complex plotting in Mission Impossible, you get action scenes sort of at every other beat, so that kind of keeps you going. But always in action scenes with a bit of a brain as well. I think the kind of the the, the reveal in the aquarium restaurant early on in, in Mission Impossible is such a great mix of kind of clever filmmaking with the way that they um, stage all the different characters, and yet at the same time it's got this great like noiry dialogue and this really good use of camera and editing. It's a really really great sequence. Yeah, it's massively ambitious one. Well. I think from a filmmaking point of view. It's got so many good people behind it. Like you think the script was written by Robert Town and Stephen Zalen, oh, right. although one adapted it from the other, or maybe I think it was probably Robert Town did like the final draft of it. Um, and they're two of the greatest scriptwriters ever to work in Hollywood. Robert Town wrote Chinatown, and oh, right. um, I think Steve Zalen worked on a number of Spielberg films. So when you've got two people like that adding to the screenplay, then it's always going to be sort of fairly easy to direct, which, um, yeah, um, Brian De Palma does. And if you didn't like this, you should watch Tomorrow Never Dies. I can't believe it's taken me 14 episodes to mention James Bond, so grab your gadgets, tuxedos, and problematic gender issues. This is one of the great underappreciated 007 films and is helmed by the king himself, Pierce Brosnan. Tensions between China and the UK are reaching fever pitch, No, that's not a headline from yesterday, but in fictional 1997, as a deadly altercation between the British Navy and Chinese Air Force makes front page news. But the front pages are just the problem. Ruthless media tycoon Elliot Carver knew details of the attack before MI6 did, which is enough to raise a few eyebrows and send 007 off to investigate. What he discovers is a wacky plan to profit off the media spoils of a war, and to complicate things, one of Bond's old flames is now married to Carver. Hot off the presses, 007. Bond. <laughs> James Bond. How much do you know about Elliot Carver, 007? Worldwide media baron. Bond's newspapers, radio, satellite TV. There's no news. Like bad news. I understand you once had a relationship with Carver's wife. Was it something I said? How about the words, I'll be right back? Let's be honest, espionage ain't for everyone. It's okay, we all get bored with the dour and the political sometimes, so why not go to the original escapist, James Bond, for the sexy side of spies? But okay, I'm not being entirely honest, because despite me describing the villain's plot as wacky, well, there's something particularly interesting about this period of Bond. The USSR and evil world-dominating agencies like Spectre are no longer the threat in the 90s, but oil barons in The World Is Not Enough, Bond himself in Goldeneye, and in Tomorrow Never Dies, it's the media. Gosh, I hear you exclaim. Are you suggesting that people like Rupert Murdoch or Conrad Black that the villain is clearly based on would use unscrupulous and downright evil means to profit off people's suffering, all the while failing as their role as journalists to make people more divided? 
Heaven for Fend. Pierce Brosnan, of course, hits the mark here. Suave and effortlessly cool one minute, but brutal and unforgiving the next. The quintessential James Bond. The action is spectacular, from the brilliantly high-octane opening at an arms deal to the gigantic shootout of an ending, and of course, memorable gadget-laden car chase through a German multi-storey car park. It's got wonderful moments with Bond as a character, meeting his match in Chinese operative Wei Lin, or coming face-to-face with one of the women he genuinely felt for in a relationship that's both tragic and sexy. It's a great ride. Tomorrow Never Dies is a film I love to fight for. It's one of my favourite Bonds, and if you want to be free from the cold constraints of the Cold War, jump into the 90s and watch a gentleman spy give Rupert Murdoch hell. Yeah, I think James Bond's as removed as you can get from Three Days of the Condor. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I mean, Bond's a genre in itself, right? So yeah, it is. He's obviously a spy, kind of easy to forget in a way, considering he, you know, wanders around the world like a action hero. Um, on a playboy oh, and a playboy yeah uh, he, well like many people have said he's probably the worst spy ever invented <laughs> uh, there's nothing that he does that's undercover um, well maybe apart from a few things oh <laughs> that was a bit of a Bond fan wasn't it yeah I think someone's secretly a bit of a Bond fan <laughs> no but actually no I, I agree with you I think this is one of the better Bonds and actually we've been treated um, with the Daniel Craig um, set of Bond films as to what quite a lot of inconsistency and with yeah. Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, and Tomorrow Never Dies was the second Pierce Brosnan Bond film, you've got two of the best Bonds ever made, actually. Um, World is Not Enough, that's when it kind of got a little bit weaker. And I think Tomorrow Never Dies is a lot smarter than, than a lot of the other Bond films. I mean, that's not saying much. When, you know, It definitely isn't smart, like Three Days with the Condor is smart. But no. um, yeah, I actually think in between all the, the quips, the gadgets, and the action, um, you've got actually like an interesting subtext about the power of the media. And I think that's really... It's really interesting and is becomes more relevant uh, every time there's a kind of another look at like the ugliness of the media and the power that it has over our lives. I always end up thinking back to Elliot Carver and uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. The action is so brilliantly crafted, though. I mean, it is one of these things where it's... It's just a bunch of sequences that you just wouldn't see made today. Um, you know, I hate to bring out that card, but it's it's got some absolutely brilliant sequences in it. Like many people have said, he's probably the worst spy ever invented. <laughs> uh, there's nothing that he does that's undercover. Um, well, maybe apart from a few things. Oh, that was a bit of a bold part, wasn't it? Thank you so much for listening to Cellcast. You can find and subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as Cellcast. And come follow us on Twitter at Cell Magazine and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Cell Magazine.